Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. When I look at your heavens, the creation of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have set in place, what is a mortal that you remember him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than yourself. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him rule what your hands created. You have put everything under his control. Psalm 8, verses 3 through 6, God's Word Translation. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. We're very grateful to be with you today as we continue the series we began last week on Anchored by Truth. We've entitled this series, Why Am I Here? To help us continue considering a question that has probably occurred to just about every person who has ever lived, we have R.D. Fierro back in the studio. R.D. is an author and the founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D., you entitled this series, Why Am I Here? I think that's a question many people have asked at one time or another, even many Christians. And during this series, we're seeking to provide a comprehensive answer or at least a strong foundation where people can meaningfully continue their own pursuit of an answer. But there is a temptation, I think, to just say that the reason we're all here is because God made us. But I'm guessing you don't think that answer is sufficient. Well, I think the answer that we're all here because God made us, that's an accurate answer, but it's perhaps incomplete. Everybody knows that there's a host of issues and difficulties that are confronting us today. But really at the heart and the root of many of those issues, just about all of them, is that they are spiritual issues. And so regardless of how the issue is labeled, that's a symptom of the disease and not the source. Sometimes you'll hear people say, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. And sin is a spiritual issue, though that is a very unpopular characterization today. But the Apostle Paul clearly pointed out that the nature of the real problem in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, quote, There is not a wrestling match against a human opponent. We are wrestling with rulers, authorities, and powers who govern this world of darkness and the spiritual forces that control evil in the heavenly world, unquote. That's from the God's Word translation. Paul tells us exactly what you're saying. The struggles we're going to face are going to trace their origins to the spiritual forces that control evil in this world. And how does this tie into the topic of this series? Helping listeners find a meaningful answer to the question, why am I here? Because we can't understand why we are here or our purpose in this life, in this world, if we don't understand the nature of reality. There are two great competing ideas about the origin of the human race. In fact, the origin of everything. On one side is the notion that, as the Bible puts it, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
Well, on the other side is the notion that the universe has always existed, although maybe not in its current form, and that all living creatures, including human beings, came into existence as the result of the random, chaotic collision of inanimate particles. Those two ideas couldn't be further apart. Christians believe that everything in existence was brought into existence by an almighty, loving Creator who has a plan and a purpose for everyone and everything. On the other side is the idea that the universe is eternal, but undirected, unguided, and ungoverned. Anything and everything that happens in the universe is the result of the undirected activity of chaotic forces that matter and energy fling themselves around like ping-pong balls in a tornado, but somehow all that chaos produced life in all its amazing organized complexity and ultimately a people that is purposeful, intelligent, and moral. Absolutely. And when you state the competing ideas that way, you can immediately see that the reason that understanding the true nature of reality is so important to anyone knowing really why they are here. If I have been created by a loving, purposeful, omniscient, and omnipotent God, then I can begin a meaningful exploration of why God gave me existence. But if I'm just a product of a long sequence of blind, random chaos, well, not only is there no one for me to turn to to ask the question, why am I here? There's not even a reason for me to ask a question. The question, why am I here, is at its most basic a question that pertains to meaning and purpose. But meaning and purpose do not exist, and indeed they cannot exist, where all actions are undirected and purposeless. The random collision of inanimate particles cannot produce meaning or purpose. Now, I cannot overstate the distinction between these two competing ideas too strongly. Inanimate means non-living, which is just a fancy way of saying dead. No one thinks atoms and molecules are alive by themselves. But we know that living creatures are made up of atoms and molecules. So, the question of how a living being can arise from non-living matter is a foundational dilemma for those who want to exclude God from any explanation of origins. As Dr. Jonathan Sarfati, the Chief Scientist for Creation Ministries International, reminded us when he helped us with our Truth in Genesis series, explaining the operation of a thing is quite different from explaining its origin. Yes. So, as Dr. Sarfati put it, it's easy to provide a reasonable, logical explanation for our existence when we include God in the equation. Now, this all goes back to saying that for us to find a truly meaningful explanation for why we are here, we must start with a clear understanding of the nature of reality. So, in our first episode in this Why Am I Here series, we focused on two big points. The first point, to know why we are here, we must recognize that we exist in a universe that was created by an Almighty God. Because if someone wants to believe that life arose from the random interaction of dead particles, that's not a reason for them to ask the question in the first place. The random, chaotic collision of atoms isn't going to produce a personal, purposeful being who seeks to understand their role in the created order. Both you and Dr. Sarfati coined what you call the Sarfati Fiero Maxim, which is, 
all denials that intelligence was necessary for the formation of life proceed from an unintelligent point of origin. Said differently, to deny that an intelligent being created all life, including us, automatically means pulling the rug out from under the notion that human beings can claim to be intelligent. Yes. It's not that people can't deny that God exists, yet still believe they are intelligent beings. They can and they do. It's just that when you unpack the intellectual foundation for those two beliefs, you will find an irreconcilable conflict. Now, this conflict doesn't trouble the Christian worldview in the slightest. Christians believe a supremely intelligent being created us. So that supremely intelligent being is certainly capable of imparting intelligence to his created beings in any manner that is consistent with his own being and character. So the first point that we need to understand about developing a meaningful answer to our question, why are we here, is to recognize that we have been created by an almighty and purposeful God. Well, the second point is to recognize the role that the Son of God, Jesus, played and continues to play in a creation that is now fallen. So just to be clear, you are noting that the created order in which we live is not in the same state as it was initially. When you say the now fallen creation, you are pointing out something very important. If Adam and Eve had never sinned, we don't know what our lives would be like today. We might likely be an enormous Garden of Eden where sin and death were unknown. Man wasn't ejected from the Garden until after he sinned. The Bible is clear that before sin, God was accustomed to walking through the Garden, and the implication is that Adam and Eve enjoyed face-to-face fellowship with God. Genesis chapter 3 verse 8 says, quote, In the cool of the evening, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking around in the Garden, unquote. So it seems like God appeared regularly in the garden, and Adam and Eve knew that. But of course, Adam and Eve did sin. Adam and Eve were thrown out of the Garden of Eden. And after they were tossed out of the Garden of Eden, the Bible no longer makes any reference to them enjoying the same level of fellowship with God that they apparently had previously enjoyed. Now the ground was cursed. Their work was cursed. Giving birth was cursed. Their first son killed their second son. Sin, after the fall, now had a firm foothold in creation. So God began, and he has carried forward ever since, a grand plan of redemption. Now that plan of redemption culminated in the birth of Jesus, who once and for all obviated the penalty of sin for anyone who had placed their trust in him. Jesus' sacrificial and atoning death removed the penalty of sin. But unfortunately, it did not remove the presence of sin, even for believers. Sin's presence is going to be with us until Jesus returns to the earth for the second time to bring an end to this phase of human history. So we live in a somewhat unique time during human history. We live in this interval between Jesus' first and second comings. We no longer have to wonder when or whether a Messiah is coming. We know God has sent the Savior that we need. During the 4,500 years of the universe's history before Jesus came the first time, people wondered when God would fulfill his promise to send a Savior. 
But we don't have that question. We know the Savior came. We also know that the Messiah's first coming was not to take over the physical rule of the earth. Rather than coming to rule the nations of the earth, he came to save the people of the nations from eternal condemnation. He now rules over the affairs of the earth from heaven. But the Bible is clear that it will not always be that way. If nothing else, the book of Revelation is clear the time is coming when Jesus will be physically with his people in the New Jerusalem. New Jerusalem will come into being after Jesus creates a new heavens and a new earth. So as you put it, during this unique time, in the interval between Jesus' first and second comings, a second very important question about why we are here is how those of us who are living now in this unique period, how are we related to Jesus? Jesus is the Son of God who came to earth as God in the flesh. Now, it should be obvious that we are not going to believe in the Son of God if we don't believe in God. And we're not going to have much interest in wanting to establish a relationship with the Son of God, with Jesus, if we do not know who He is. So the whole reason that this point is so important is because of the continuing presence of sin in this world. This poses a danger for everyone who does not accept Jesus as their Savior. And Jesus made it very clear that he expected his followers to carry the message that salvation was available throughout the entire world. Jesus had completed the work necessary for people to be saved, but there are a great, great, great many people who still need to hear that message. The Apostle Paul reinforced this calling in the book of Romans, chapter 10, verses 13 through 15, which say, So then, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can people call on him if they have not believed in him? How can they believe in him if they have not heard his message? How can they hear if no one tells the good news? How can people tell the good news if no one sends them? As scripture says, how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who announce the good news. That's the God's Word translation version. So a third point that is relevant to us finding a truly sustaining answer as to why we are here is that we must be prepared to study the Bible. To truly know why we are here, it's not enough for us to simply fall back on vague assurances that all of our lives have meaning. And it's really not enough for us to know that God loves us. Now, certainly those assurances are necessary, but they are the starting point for knowing why we are here. Those kinds of assurances that our lives have meaning and God loves us, those assurances are necessary. But as necessary as they are, They're only going to provide temporary satisfaction to finding out why we are here. I can tell someone that God loves them and has a plan for their life. Now, those statements are absolutely true, but those statements will only get that person so far. What you're saying is that if we want to develop an answer to the question of why we're here that will carry us forward in our lives, we have to have a firm grasp on the nature of reality. And only the Bible gives us important information about essential truths, like the fact that there is a spiritual war raging around us. Reality has an unpleasant tendency to intrude in our lives at inopportune moments, and if I'm not prepared to deal with it, it's easy for me to lose my balance. Knowing that God loves me and is always with me is an absolutely essential prerequisite 
to making any more progress to a deeper grasp of the purpose of my life. But life is inevitably going to bring me challenges, and I have to build on that foundational knowledge of God's love for me. A strong foundation is necessary for the house to stand. But I'm going to be pretty exposed to the elements if the foundation is all that I have. Now, I would hasten to repeat, as we noted in our first episode, that we must always approach these subjects in an age and audience appropriate way. A distressed Reality teenager does not need to master the nuances of the Levitical Code or probe the deep moments. mysteries of the Book and of Revelation. To deal with a distressed it, teenager needs to, to know that balance. someone loves them, that their lives Knowing have that meaning, God that God loves them, and, and that God has a plan for their lives. And the same thing is generally is true for people who are recent converts or people who have not yet even accepted Christ as their Savior. People who are dealing with life crises or with struggles, they may doubt that God loves them and has a plan for their lives. So it is important for us to provide them that immediate reassurance. But if that's all they ever know about why we are here, then they're not going to be able to prepare effectively for the next dose of reality, which always comes our way. People need to get a firm grasp, a really firm grasp, on something you pointed out earlier, that we are all made in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 says, quote, Then God said, let us make humans in our image, in our likeness, unquote. This points out why we need to know something, actually a lot, about the Bible, if we want to know why we are here. We are God's image bearers. That fact is inescapable. Some commentators point that carrying God's image is a bit like seeing our reflection in a mirror. When we see our reflection, we are seeing an image of ourselves. The reflection in the mirror isn't us, but it looks like us. When we move, it moves. If we change clothes, it changes clothes. The reflection, the image, is more than just a representation of us. It indelibly possesses some of the qualities we possess. So the image in the mirror cannot divorce itself from the real person and somehow independently begin to contemplate why it is there. Now, that's sort of an idea of the image being separated from the original. Well, that makes for a good fantasy story, a science fiction story. But that's all it is. It's a fantasy. The image bearer, man in this case, is always, in certain respects and in certain ways, going to reflect the original. Now, in the case of people, we are always going to reflect, to some degree, our Father God. And ministers will sometimes note, when they're talking about this subject, that the image of God that we possess, that man possesses, is a marred image. It's like an image in a mirror with a curve or a crack. But the image is still a real image. And that means two things. First, if we have no idea what God looks like, or said differently, who God is, we cannot understand why we are here. It'd be like trying to see our image in a mirror in a completely dark room. And second, the more exalted our view of God, the higher the esteem we are going to place on our own role in the created order. Those thoughts are both terrifying and thrilling. If we have no idea who God is, we can have no real idea who we are. And if we don't know who we are, it will be impossible to know why we are here. But the thrilling part is that the greater our awareness of God's majesty and sovereignty, the greater we may truly believe in our own worth and dignity. 
And quite often, that's the basic reason people are asking the question about why they are here. They not only want to be assured that their life has meaning, but also that their life is worthy of dignity and respect. Right. And this goes back to the need for people to become very familiar with the Bible. Because it's only from the Bible that we can develop a full-orbed understanding of who and what God is. The Bible gives us as comprehensive a picture of God as the human mind is able to form. From the Bible, we learn about God's unrivaled power, unblemished righteousness, His immaculate character, and His amazing love and grace. And this enables us to have a full appreciation of God's glory and His majesty. And then we can contemplate our own lives and meanings knowing that the sovereign, royal, and perfectly holy God has chosen us to bear His image. Now, that alone ought to banish any doubts that anyone has about our worth as human beings. God cares so much for us, His image bearers, that God chose to place His image on our flesh. That thought takes us straight to our opening scripture from Psalm 8. In that psalm, David is clearly staggered by the thought that the same God who framed the heavens, made the sun and the moon, and put the stars in their place, actually takes notice of and cares for men and women. It's a staggering thought. And it goes straight to the heart of our question, why am I here? At least part of the answer to that question is that we are here to bear God's image. Or said slightly differently, we are here to ensure that the people that we encounter can see God's goodness and righteousness through us, through me. Now, this is a truly good example of what else people looking for meaning in their life need to know. They need to know that God loves them, but they need to know that God is not just sort of a supersized human character, someone who is powerful, maybe supernatural but that he is not necessarily royal, majestic, or good. Because if God was that kind of a sort of supersized human being, well, there would not be a particularly good reason for the people to be unduly concerned about providing a good image for that kind of a lesser God, we'll call it. And moreover, it would be hard for them to place a lot of confidence in what that God could do for them. But if, like David, we fully appreciate God's omnipotent power, to not just create the universe and not just to govern the earth, but to govern 50 billion galaxies in the visible universe, well, then our appreciation of that God and subsequently our appreciation of ourselves can begin to change. That's why it's so important for a familiarity with the Bible to be a significant part of any meditation we do on why we are here. From the Bible, we learn about God. And from our better understanding about God, we can develop a better understanding of ourselves. But that's not the only reason we need to know the Bible, to know why we are here, is it? No, it's not. And we're going to get more into these subjects in upcoming episodes. But just as an introduction for now, the Bible itself gives us a very direct revelation of why we are here in many places. For instance, There is a very important verse about our purpose on planet Earth in one of the least read and loved books of the Bible, the book of Leviticus. You are thinking of Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, aren't you? Yes. That verse says, quote, Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy, unquote. 
That also comes from God's Word translation. You know, a lot of times when we ask the question, why am I here? We first want to be sure that our lives have meaning. But second, we are concerned about things like life choices, like careers, education, relationships, and goals. And the Bible has a lot to say about those things. Yes, it does, and that's one of the beautiful things about the Bible. But above and beyond those concerns, the Bible is concerned about our character. That is essentially what the verse from Leviticus is telling us. We must develop holy characters. Holy as God defines holiness. Now, none of us start out holy, and we're going to have plenty of stumbles along the way. I sure have had more than my share, and God knows that. But one of the great things about God is that He does not just toss us out because we stumble and struggle. Our God is a God of redemption, restoration, and reclamation. And there would be no need for redemption unless we were fallen. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, verse 17, Jesus said, quote, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners, unquote. That's from the New International Version. But God does not want us to remain in our sin, and God wants us to learn how to overcome our sin in our struggles. God wants to give us victory. So when he gives us that admonition in Leviticus to be holy, God's not trying to discourage us. He's simply reinforcing his call for us to come to him. And again, this points out the need to ensure that we are studying the whole word of God. Leviticus is in the Old Testament. It's the third book of the Bible. It's the middle of the Pentateuch. And a lot of people will often tell you that the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, well, they're irrelevant to the church today. Well, they're not, as we've just pointed out. We were created by a loving God to bring honor to his kingdom and to enjoy an eternal, personal relationship with him. This life is preparation for the life to come. This life is preparation for an eternity with God. The Westminster Catechism answers the question, What is the chief purpose of man? With the answer, To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Unquote. Yes. So as we dive more deeply into finding out why we are here, we have to be sure that we master the basics about God, about man, and purpose. Because if we don't get a firm grasp on those basics, we can ask the question, why am I here, until we are blue in the face, but we are never going to get an answer that will truly satisfy us or please God. Amen. So those basics include knowing that God created the universe. We need to know this so we can understand the nature of reality. Next, we need to know that the created order fell when man sinned, but that God began a plan of redemption and that the key step in that plan was the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So to know why we are here, we must also know how we are related to Jesus. And to get a firm grasp on those first two points, we must study the Bible because if we don't, our knowledge of God, Jesus, reality, and redemption is going to be incomplete. This sounds like a great time to go to God in prayer. Today, let's listen to a prayer for our government officials. Prayer for Government Leaders God of glory and ruler of all men, thank you for the manifold blessings that you have bestowed upon our community and nation. 
Lord, we pray that you would remember those who have been elected and appointed to serve as leaders of our communities, states, and nation. You have ordained that governments be established among men. It is your desire and command that governments provide for the defense of the weak and helpless and foster the common good. You desire all governments everywhere to pursue truth and justice in every action they take. For only honest and just servants are consistent with your holy character. We pray that you would remind them that they are accountable to you for their conduct while in office, and that they are accountable for the results of their actions, not merely the content of their intentions. We pray that you would grant them guidance and direction, that you would fill their hearts and minds with the wisdom that can only come from you. Praise be to you, Holy Father, that our faith need not rest on the actions of any human leader, no matter how powerful, for the greatest among men can never escape your providence and will. Thank you, blessed Lord, for your kindness and mercy. Glorify yourself in directing the ways of this nation and cause your name to be magnified on earth. In Christ's holy name we pray and give thanks. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalcbooks.com, where... We're not perfect, but our boss is.